So we're grateful for the gift of technology and all those who run it that we could be with you. And before I speak today, I I want to shepherd you in this moment, which is the greatest moment in our life, the fear and trembling moment. I want to shepherd you before I speak toward the end of my message today. I will mention the word abortion because of an event that happened in the news this week that's so large that it would be wrong not to say that word today. So if you're an adult, I would ask that you would stay with me through that portion of the message. Don't give in to the temptation to run. Just summon courage and stay. If you're a parent shepherding a child, you may have to decide at what point in your child's development you want them to hear certain words. That's up to you. My language, of course, would never be caustic, but you still determine what you want your child to learn and from whom. Let's pray. Father, and never before have I felt fear and trembling, rightful worship, respect of you, and the sacredness of the moment than today. So, I don't have any solutions. Words are very little in light of a moment that's larger than any person, any office, any Congress, any global gathering. We need you, God. We need the King of the universe. The world that we are surrounded by and care for is hurting and grieving and dying. And in many cases, we cannot stop that. We can only prepare them by telling them of Christ, the loving Savior, eternal comforter, the only one who has the authority to forgive sin and to prepare people to live in the presence of a perfect and holy God. So, Father, prepare hearts all over the world today. Provoke them to a desire to come to their Lord, to be reunited with their God, to be cleansed of their past, present, and future, to be given the righteousness of Jesus. Father, we pray for the dying. We we ask every conceivable means of comfort would be given to them. We pray for those who minister to the dying. They would be kept from disease as they give their lives in the medical profession. We pray for a cure. We beg you, Lord, to give insight to scientists and doctors. We pray for society, for an unbelievable behavior that's wise in these days. And we pray most of all for mercy for a world and a nation that doesn't deserve it. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. As you know, the coronavirus over the past few weeks has amped up pastoral activity all over the web. Pastors have been seeking to become very creative in using the web because of the absence of the ability to gather with their people in worship centers. And if you look at the broadcast over the past two to three weeks, There's a predominant theme that's easy to pick up, and that is, do not fear. And I certainly have enjoyed, because of the black and white words of the Word of God, using my authority as a Bible teacher to take us to Psalm 46, whose admonition is, do not fear. But today I want to look at an equally true reality, very clearly also spoken of in Scripture, and that is, when it is right... And when it is wise to fear. There are a number of places I could go in the Bible to demonstrate this. But I want to 
use a statement that came out of the mouth of Christ. And I think it's important that I use words from Jesus because if I took something from the Old Testament, a cynic might say, well, that's from the Old Testament God who is mean, not the New Testament Jesus who is sweet like grandpa and cool like a surfer. The word to fear came from our Lord's mouth. There's a popular thing going on nowadays to try to get Jesus and God the Father in the octagon in a match, as if they have different personalities. One's mean, one's nice. There's no such distinction in the Bible. The only people in the octagon, God on one side and humanity on the other. And the choice is yours. You can either fight against God or you can go partner and have a relationship and let God fight for you. So I guess the thesis of my message today would be something like this. If God is fighting for you, you have nothing to fear. If God is fighting against you, you have everything to fear. So I guess that would raise the question, who is God fighting against? And the answer would be those who choose to remain in their sin and not repent. The strangest thing that could ever happen is to view a calamity of massive proportions of death and not think about your own death and not be ready for death. But that happens all the time. And Jesus knew that and therefore spoke to that. Luke chapter 13. Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus, got a report, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Pilate was the governor of Judea, modern day Israel, north section, appointed by Rome, and he had such a small self-image that he inflated his ego by killing people at a whim. And so on this day, he killed Galilean worshipers. That means they were Jewish by religion, but Galilean by geographical, where they lived. They didn't live. They weren't born in, in Israel. They lived elsewhere, but they came to the land of Israel to worship. That's why they were called Galilean worshipers. And for some reason, he killed them. I don't know whether they were worshiping, they were protesting. He killed them while they were in the temple. When Jesus found out about this mysterious suffering, he said, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all die likewise. Then Jesus goes to another calamity that had occurred in recent days in his time. Verse 4, second calamity. Of those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Again, we're not told of the details of this calamity other than a building fell and 18 people died. Jesus makes it clear that these calamities did not happen to these people because they were worse than the rest of the population. There are a lot of people every day in the world who are doing good things, who suffer bad things. When the tsunami hit in 2004 in Southeast Asia, 250,000 people died with that giant wave. Many of them were doing good things when the wave hit. It wasn't just like people doing evil things got hit by the wave. 
So if you would have been standing with Jesus this day when these two situations were brought to him and he gave you the nod and said, make a theological judgment on what happened here, you would have probably said, like most people do in this time, we're believers, we have nothing to fear. We're doing good things. Our businesses won't close. Our health won't decline. Do not fear that anything bad will ever happen to you. Believer, Jesus doesn't go there. He avoids that discussion altogether. Instead, he says to all the world, believing and unbelieving, let calamity have its proper effect on you, reminding you that you will die and be ready to die. That's the purpose of calamity. Everybody's going to die, therefore be ready to die. Because if you're not ready to die, not ready to meet God, the next calamity, the judgment of God will be far greater than the sword of Pilate, a falling building, or a spreading virus. We know that's what Jesus meant because elsewhere he clarified that when he said, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And he's talking about God. So there is a right time and a wise time to be afraid. That, that is, if you insist on looking at calamity and not repenting and returning to God, you should be Afraid. There will be a day when you will give an account whether or not you regarded God as supreme. Supremely beautiful. Supremely generous. Supremely forgiving. And supremely worthy. Worthy of your affection. Worthy of your attention. Supremely worthy of your devotion. And in order to be prepared for this day, God, in His kindness, sends calamity to wake us up and say, be prepared, because whether it's a sword, a virus, or a tower, everybody dies. Be prepared to die. That's why He sends calamity. Earlier this week, I read a blog, in just a matter of a few weeks, God has taken away everything we worship. God said, you want to worship athletes? I'll take away your stadiums. You want to worship musicians? I'll take away your civic centers. You want to worship actors? I'll shut down your theaters. You want to worship money? I'll shut down the economy. You don't want to go to church and say it's hard to get up and go to church? I'll make it impossible for you to gather in public places for worship. When you read a blog like that, you say, well, did God do all of this? Is God responsible for the coronavirus? And the answer is yes. Because ultimately, God has power and authority over everything in the universe. His power is so great that with one word, one word, He could Eliminate, eradicate all traces of the virus before I finish my next sentence. He has that power and is choosing now, today, not to use that power to eradicate coronavirus. He fully understands all the mechanisms of that virus. He knows the scientific medical answer. And has not yet revealed it. So God is responsible in the sense that he could stop everything. Always. So it doesn't matter how things start. They might start by nature. They might start by human plans. They might start by demonic plotting. So it doesn't matter how something starts, God can 
always stop it. And that's why he says, I am responsible. He wants that burden of being responsible. Nature is not sovereign. Man is not sovereign. Satan is not sovereign. Only God is sovereign. Not one event on earth happens unless it comes before the throne of heaven and God permits it. As the psalmist says in Psalm 115.3, Our God is in heaven and He does whatever. He pleases Him. That's, that verse is the basis of our understanding of the sovereignty of God. That reality can be said about no other force in the world. No one, no person, no agency can say, I can do, I have the power, I have the authority to do whatever pleases me at any time. Nobody can say that but God. That's why He is sovereign. That's why R.C. Sproul says, there are no maverick molecules in the universe. They all report to God. Jesus knew that, obviously. And that's why Jesus said, how involved is God in everything? Matthew 10, 29, not a bird, not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from the will of God allowing the bird to fall. God is sovereign and can stop coronavirus anytime He wishes. And He and He alone will determine how far-reaching the virus will go. That's why John Piper rightly says, this is not a season for sentimental views of God. It is a bitter season. And God sent it. And He sent it for a purpose. Because everything God does has a purpose as verified by the writings all throughout Scripture, but so specifically by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 1.11. God works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will. How much does He work out according to His will? Everything, every detail in life is part of His purposefulness for the world. God acts with purpose. So what is the purpose for this global pandemic? So what is it? Well, that's not hard to answer. That one is, you could have asked me a hard question. This is an easy question. God is trying to get our attention. Our church has a friend in India. You have been faithful to partner with our brother who heads up a church planting network now around 270 churches, villages, and slums, and some in urban sprawling areas, 270 precious congregations. His wife is a medical doctor, and as you know, India is on lockdown right now, and being on lockdown in India is severe. You have 64 million people in India alone, who live in slums, they have to work every day to feed themselves that day. They can't, they're not allowed to work. Every day they work for to the, that day's meal. This is vital that we pray. His wife's a doctor. She also is in quarantine because once she committed to being in a hospital, she has to stay there a month. So he's at home. She's living in a month treating COVID-19 people and all sorts of other sick people. And he wrote this week and said, there's an advantage of being locked up in a hospital with sick people. Every person that Retina meets, she says, would you please repent and give your life to Jesus Christ for we're all going to die and you can live with God forever. God has a purpose for this pandemic. And that is to bring people to be ready to meet Him. God's trying to gain the attention of many people around the world through COVID-19. 
19. But I don't think he's gained the attention of America yet. Right now, our attention is on the government. And say, you fix it. Pour $2 trillion into the economy. Fix it. Or we say to scientists, doctors, work harder, work longer. 24 hours, try to find 28 hours. Fix it. So far, we're looking to politics and science. Not many people are craving God more than they did before the virus. We're still not craving a Savior. We need a vaccine. But 10,000 times more than that, we need a Savior. We need Jesus. Because everybody eventually will die. No vaccine can stop you from dying. And when you die, the most important reality that's going to be true or not true in your life at that time, the most important reality, most important question Are my sins forgiven? When you die, most important question, are my sins forgiven or now do I have to pay for my sins in eternity because I did not accept the salvation that has been purchased for me by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Are my sins forgiven or do I have to pay for my sins? That's the most important question in life. Last week I quoted from a blog written by a friend of mine and Lisa's. We met back in the 80s in our time in Texas at seminary. So Dr. Susan Booth, who's a professor of missions and evangelism at the uh, Canadian Baptist Seminary, uh, I think in Calgary, Canada, she wrote a brilliant blog last week called Reflections on Coronavirus, a Severe mercy. And I quoted a bit of it last week, and I really would like to explain the whole thing to you. But I don't want to read it to you. So I'm going to paraphrase her stuff, and her writing is much better than my paraphrasing. But I don't think you'd appreciate it if I read the whole thing to you. So before I talk about it, I want to say there's one thing she mentions in the article. She mentions the word ground zero. I want to clarify what she means by that. And that would be where the virus originated, and then she links it biblically to ground zero. So just understand, she's just letting us know that ground zero obviously is in Wuhan, China. And a matter of fact, a friend of mine who lives in China sent me a picture yesterday. I don't know how he got it and got it out of through the Chinese government, but it was a picture of a line, massive line of people waiting to get into a funeral home to make arrangements for their loved ones. So we grieve. We grieve. We grieve for China and Italy and now the United States. People lining up. We grieve. We grieve for what death does and how horrible it is. In her blog, Dr. Booth says, we're already infected with a much deadlier virus than COVID-19, one that surfaced soon after the world began. Ground zero was a place called Eden. So current virus began in Wuhan. The bigger virus began in the Garden of Eden. If you're not familiar with the coronavirus, it, it looks a little bit, it's interesting, it it has a little bit of shape of a crown. All those points that come out of it are proteins. And that's how it spreads from cell to cell. Those, those spikes grab the next cell next door. And the disease spreads through that, that crown-like structure. But anyway, it sort of looks like a crown which takes us back to the Garden of Eden. So in the Garden of Eden, God created a perfect world. 
beautiful garden, plants, flowers, rivers, perfect atmosphere, and gave it as a gift to man. God, the king, the crown wearer, gave his work to humanity as a gift, a perfect gift. But humans in the garden were not content with the gift. They did not believe that they should be less than God who wears the crown. They wanted to wear the crown of God themselves to be like God. So they rebelled against God. And on the day they rebelled, they were infected with a God-rebelling virus, and they began to die. And everybody after them has now been born with a God-rebelling virus. It's exactly what Paul says in Romans 5.12. Just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, so Adam died and then Adam sinned and he got a God, he became infected with the virus and that led to his death. And in the same way, death came to all people because all sinned, which meant in the Garden of Eden, all of us genetically became infected that moment, birth after birth after birth through the centuries, with a God-rebelling virus. We love ourselves more than God. We're born in this world loving ourselves more than God. That's what the virus does. We live for ourselves more than we live for God. That's a God-rebelling virus. We think about ourselves more than we think about God. That's symptoms of a God-rebelling virus. And amazingly, the infection rate and the mortality rate of that virus is 100%. Everybody who gets that virus will die. And in 6,000 years of history, mankind has never found a cure for that virus. God has. In the same chapter in which we see this disease, death, spreading virus, God says, here's the cure. Romans 5 verse 8. But God, love that, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So there was a moment in history, slightly more than 2,000 years ago, when Jesus, co-equal with God, King of kings, rightfully worthy of wearing the crown, took off the crown, laid it aside, and became a man so that he could come and teach and perform miracles. But because of his claims that he was the only way to bring people to God, Crown-loving, crown-pursuing leaders hated him. And so they jammed a crown of thorns on his head, nailed him to a cross, and killed him. They thought that they were through with him, but he rose from the dead, which we'll celebrate in a few weeks. Maybe just like this, probably just like this. And what was discovered when he rose from the dead, that the shedding of Christ's blood was so powerful that it eliminated the the stain of the God-rejecting virus, and it had been defeated in our bodies because of his blood. His blood was the cure. Christ's blood is so powerful, it can cure any man of any sin. Now, you would think that everyone in the world right now would be thinking about that, thinking about their life and their mortality. But it's amazing how many people will waste this crisis 
they are so ready for life to go back to normal. Even children are begging to go back to school. People are about to waste this crisis. Why? How is that possible? To waste a crisis of this magnitude. It's possible because of what the, of the major symptom or the major problem that the, the virus of Eden, the God-rejecting virus, what it does to us. The major symptom of the God-rejecting virus of Eden is not a cough and it's not a fever and it's not shortness of breath. It's blindness. It's a major symptom of the God-rejecting virus. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see, even now, the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Amazing. God sends calamity, a reminder that we're all going to die. He tells us in Romans 5, we've all been infected. No matter how good you feel today, how healthy, you're going to die. No, how many, no matter how many pleasures you experience, they're not big enough to satisfy you and they're not strong enough to save you. That's Dr. Booth. You need Christ to cleanse you of your sin, to walk with you through death into eternity into the kingdom of God where no virus, no ventilators, no hospitals, and no pain exist. That's where he wants to take you. That's what he offers. And it's such a precious gift that he is willing to bring about a global pandemic that you would consider him and his offer. Yeah, that's what's the reaction of most people during this present calamity. Not an increased seeking of God. Not an increased turning from sin, just more Netflix, more baking, more cooking, more cleaning, more chores, and more complaining about more waiting, not more seeking of God. Yet in the midst of this calamity, Christ stands with outstretched arms offering you salvation from sin and a readiness for eternity. If you want to know what spiritual blindness really looks like in this world, you have been staring at it all week on the news. But this is why I said at the beginning of my message I was going to go here. Because of how blatant it got this week. If I had not heard it myself, I, wouldn't have, I would not have quoted it. I would have said, that's not true. He did not say that. On Tuesday, May 24th, this year, in defending the need for more federal support to come to the state of New York so that older people, vulnerable people would not die, Andrew Cuomo, governor, said this, and I'll show this video, and then he says, I want you to hear it. I didn't make this up, and then I may quote it on PowerPoint. My mother is not expendable. And your mother is not expendable. My mother is not expendable. And your mother is not expendable. And our brothers and sisters are not expendable. And we're not going to accept a premise that human life is disposable. I'm going to quote that again just in case I mess things up with tech. My mother is not expendable, your mother is not expendable, our brothers and sisters are not expendable, and we're not going to accept a premise that human life is disposable. He said that. It's a good statement. It's a gloriously good statement. He went on to say after that, we're not going to put a dollar figure on human life. The first order of business is to save lives. Andrew Cuomo, governor of New York, 
said that. Those words came from the mouth of a man who on January 23rd signed in New York Reproductive Health Act, shortened name RHA, January 23rd, 2019. He himself said, it is the most aggressive abortion law in the country. It was sold to the public as it was just going to fine-tune Roe v. Wade of 1973. Not true at all. The RHA removed all limits of abortion. Killing a baby, allowing the killing of a baby up to like within one minute of its birth. It also grants non-doctors the ability to perform abortions. So here's a baby at 24 weeks. I love this baby. <laughs> this baby is in my daughter's womb. But that's what any baby would look like at 24 weeks. We've already named this baby. We, I call Anna up all the time and say, can Wells come over tonight? I love him so much because he is obviously, as you can see, at 24 weeks. Well, we did away with, or we made possible the killing of, of, of him in 1973 easily. That was, Roe v. Wade made that possible. But now, this is what Andrew Cuomo did. A baby, this child, one minute before he is born, can legally be killed in New York State. Cuomo said, after the bill was passed, the, Rep the Reproductive Health Act is a historic victory for New Yorkers. I promised that we would enact this critical legislation within the first 30 days of the new session, and we got it done. On Tuesday night, when the bill was passed, he, Governor Cuomo, ordered that the Freedom Tower, the top of it, be lit up pink as a celebration of the slaughter of babies. Pink, the color that we associate when little baby girls are born. Pink is now the color for New York to associate the killing of baby girls when they are born. I share this example so that you'll know what spiritual blindness looks like. For him to make that statement this week, life matters, everybody matters, we're going to spend money to save life. And he does this. We shut down restaurants, schools, travel, businesses, trillions of dollars in business. All because we're trying to keep the most vulnerable people in society, older people and those who already have compromised health situations, to keep them alive. And that's a gloriously noble thing. Yet this same society, when they think about the truly most vulnerable people in the world, a defenseless baby, is not so certain about doing whatever it takes to protect a child. The most defenseless in the world. I'm sure you've seen on television... All of the, every time you look on the newscast, you see the newscaster interviewing a professional, and there's always this update on how many people 
have died from coronavirus. And I just got this one off the television last night, uh, 2026, and so I didn't look this morning. I'm sure I'm way off. Sad to say, way off. So, coronavirus has been in the United States. That's 2026 in our country. Let me be clear on that. U.S. death, 2,000 deaths. The first death was February 29th. So that's four weeks, one month. In one month, 2,026 people have died. In the same 30-day period, 90,000 babies have been killed in the United States. John MacArthur says everyone is in a panic that old people might die but don't seem to be disturbed that babies are being slaughtered in the womb. This is the confusion of a godless culture. Coronavirus takes the lives of 2,000 Americans in the past 30 days and we gasp. Abortion takes the lives of 90,000 children in America in 30 days, and we don't blink. But God blinks. He blinks. He grieves. You're made in the image of God, and therefore this afternoon when you go to the television to see what, the, what is the true number of coronavirus deaths? When you see the number, your heart, your spirit, your stomach is going to turn with sadness. You know why? You know why you care about death? Because you're made in the image of God who cares about death. And yet, blindness has come across the United States. And across the church of the United States. Because no one's grieving over 90,000 in one month. Not a word on the networks. Hardly a word in the church. So I'll begin my message by asking, is it ever right to be afraid of God? Governor Cuomo, you should be afraid of God. All the legislators in New York State, you should be afraid of God. All the citizens of this country that believe the killing of the children should be a law that permits this. You should be afraid of God. In 34 years of pastoring, I've never met one person that I've counseled who was glad they chose abortion. Ever. They come into my office. I have no adequate words to describe what they, the pain they expressed. And they all say, I stuffed it down in my heart as long in, in my heart as long as I can. And it haunts me every day. And sweet relief never comes to them until they hear Jesus Christ say, I forgive you. I hurt. Jesus says, I hurt. For all the pain you're feeling. I do not wish this pain for you. I want you to give that pain to me. And let me bury it beneath my blood. And I want you to swim in the ocean of my love. And you must trust me. That I was there that day in the clinic. 
And that child is in my care. And you now are in my care. And I will walk with you. And I will use you until the day that you see my face in my kingdom. I love you. <laughs> so in that sense, we're not very different. We're all sinners, and the answer for all of our sin was the death of Christ. Sin hurts us in different ways. It brings different pain into our life. But Jesus had to die for all of it. So in one sense, we're all the same. But in another sense, we're a lot different in our sin. Because some choose to go to Christ for forgiveness. And others choose to remain in their sin. And that's how we're different. And those people who choose to remain in their sins should be afraid of God. At this critical moment in history, our nation should be afraid of God. Maybe you've not been a part of an abortion, but you have been part of a silent church. We should be ashamed of a country that does not spend money to protect its most vulnerable, but rather we make money in the disposing of the most vulnerable. America, you should be afraid of your failure to repent before God. The Old Testament prophet Amos says, when disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? People find it hard to believe that God would ever orchestrate calamity. What I find hard to believe is why didn't he do it sooner? We should not be surprised that God brings judgment on society. What is surprising is that he doesn't do it more often. Yet, yet, when God's judgment on culture is deserved, he still desires to minimize the judgment. He wants to remove it. He wants to bless and not judge. And that's what he told the talented, wealthy, world-renowned, political leader, King Solomon, right after the worship center was constructed in Israel. Second Chronicles 7.14 If my people, the church... who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. The only hope the country at this time is a repenting, God-seeking, praying, worshiping church. Would you begin today as never before and make this week a week of prayer and fasting? Would you turn your eyes as never before, upon Jesus.
Let's pray. Father, we are craving to see Jesus. We want to see him. We want to see his compassion. We want to see his sovereignty over oceans and storms, sick bodies, weary lungs, failing hearts. We want to see heaven. We want to see the city. We want to see the river. We want to see the tree of life with healing for all the nations. We want to see Jesus. We want to see an empty cross stained with blood that is able to remove the sin of the abortionist the young woman who was deceived, the boyfriend who was scared, the doctor who performed it, the media who lied about it, the industry that profits from it. Jesus, your blood is able to forgive all, to forgive the pornographer, the adulterer, the greedy, the liar, the glutton, the blasphemer. Your blood on that cross is able to forgive it all. We want to see Jesus. We want to see Jesus. The power that raised him from the dead, that brought him out of the tomb, the power that took him back to heaven, gave him back his crown, we want to see that power to come upon the United States and Italy and Korea and China and Great Britain and South America. We want to see the power of Jesus Christ open the eyes of the blind, soften the hardness of deaf hearts. We want to see Jesus save and bring millions into the kingdom of God, forgiven, cleansed, and new in His name. I pray. Amen.